Well, we return to our series in Hebrews 11, and the text of Scripture is Hebrews 11 and verse 23, beginning a new section or a subsection, as it were, of Hebrews 11 as having dealt with the faith of the patriarchs, the writer now looks at the faith of Moses, and here in this verse, the faith of his parents. So verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. We've had that reading from Exodus 1 and 2 and let's just hear another section of scripture, a shorter section on the same Events in Acts chapter 7 from the sermon of Stephen, Acts 7, I'll just take from verses 18 to 20. The people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king or another pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And then it says, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. So we see here the faith that is particularly noted in Moses' parents from the tribe of Levi, Uh, And we see, it's interesting, a bit like verses 20 to 22, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the exercise of their faith is in a different sphere from many of the heroes in this chapter. If we work on in the chapter, we come to the uh, names of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. We come to the great heroic deeds that they did by faith. But rather like Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, these parents are not working amidst the heroic, courageous uh, things of life, but rather in some very ordinary circumstances, although, of course, uh, there is an area of great courage in what they did. Faith amid the ordinary things of life, it is a reminder to us that we all, if we're Christians, are called to walk in that way of faith. Uh, amidst the ordinary duties. But there was this added matter of the fact of Pharaoh's uh, hatred of the Jews and fear of the Jews. So we could say faith amid the ordinary things of life and faith in the face of state oppression. And when I say that, of course, we immediately become very up-to-date, don't we, Uh, with what is going on in many parts of the world and what our brothers and sisters in Christ are called upon to do, to have faith in God amidst state oppression. So we notice firstly what was threatening these parents. It was the king's command. They were not afraid of the king's command. And we know well enough from the reading in Exodus what that king's command was. The king had that mixture of fear and hatred, which was really completely unjustified, but it does reflect 
how unbelievers think of God and of the gospel and the people of God. Uh, there is fear and there is hatred because the natural man does not love God and the law of God. And sometimes that comes out in the way they treat God's people. And so this king firstly asked the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, to commit infanticide of the male children, of the male babies. Uh, he commands that they should save alive the, the females, the girls, but have the male children cast into the river. There may well be uh, a sacral element in what he said. We might say an idolatrous element because uh, the Nile was holy to the Egyptians. The Nile was one of the gods that they worshipped. Hence, when God sent the plague upon the river, turning the water into blood, it was showing that he was superior, far superior to any idol of Egypt. But here we see uh, that the, the Pharaoh wants the children thrown into the Nile, drowned and maybe fed to the crocodiles or whatever. And there are two threats here in the king's command. There's an explicit threat, of course, to the baby boys. But there's also an implicit threat, one that was mentioned in Exodus 1, to the midwives or to the parents if they disregarded this command. It was a crude threat, of course, whether the explicit one or the implicit one, it was crude. It was utterly tyrannical. And this left the parents and people like them in a very stark position. There was no middle way in this matter. Either they killed or had the baby boys thrown in the river or else they disobeyed the king's command. So we see what was threatening them. It was very clear. It was very brutal. And we see, secondly, how they reacted to the threat. They didn't throw the baby in the river, but they hid Moses for three months. And we uh, read in Acts 7 of how uh, Moses was brought up in his own father's household for those three months. But what we need to notice here is that they did not do this because they were afraid, but they did this because they were not afraid. I hope, I hope you follow me. Their hiding of the baby was not because they were afraid, which we might expect that fear would cause them to hide the baby, but it says here they were not afraid of the king's command, and that led them to hide the baby. So it's not all bound up with whether or not they were frightened to show the newborn infant to family and friends, but it's bound up with their determination not to break God's law. It's bound up with their determination not to let man bring fear into their hearts so that they disobey God's law, even if it's the, the state or the sacral state of Egypt that's behind the law. Now, there is, of course, a clear command in Scripture that we should obey the powers that be. Romans chapter 13 makes that absolutely clear. Let me read the opening words of that chapter. 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And if we just lift those out and take, remove them altogether from their context and from the rest of Scripture, that is quite clear. We should never, under any circumstances, resist or disobey the powers that be. But, of course, we have to see everything in context. The first context noticed, rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. God's, he's God's servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's servant, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. We have to see this not in necessarily in clear black and white terms because this is Nero's government that's here being referred to. But we have to see it in the broad sense that, that uh, government is better than anarchy. And even within a tyrannical regime, presumably, normally, Things like murder are tracked down by the police and punished, even within the more oppressive regimes on the whole. But there does come a point, and this is where we see everything in the whole context of Scripture, where sometimes there is no choice left to the people of God but to disobey the powers that be, because there is a higher priority, there is a higher power. It's the power of Almighty God. And so in Acts chapter 5, we read of the priests, the chief priests, high priests, and so on, telling the apostles, telling Peter and John that they mustn't preach, they mustn't preach Christ. Uh, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You might say, well, that's not a big deal just to tell them not to preach. It's not like telling them to kill the baby boys. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They make it quite clear that this is not a command that they're going to obey, that in this matter there is a higher priority. And as I've already indicated, such issues are still alive in many places of the world today even if the details and the circumstances are very different. So we are not here given a mandate for just breaking the law whenever we think we want to. We're not given a mandate either for making martyrs of ourselves by foolish behavior, but we are reminded that there are those occasions when individuals may have to disobey the law in order to obey God. I think we're just edging ever so slowly, aren't we, as a society into that kind of area with the kinds of laws that have been passed in recent years. It's getting nearer and nearer, just slowly uh, edging there. So we see what was threatening them, we see how they reacted to the threat, and then thirdly, we've noted why they reacted as they did. It wasn't because of fear, it was because of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. 
It was not just an act of defiance because they were fed up with this pharaoh and they, they didn't want anything to do with his government, some sort of temporary outburst of courage and defiance. It wasn't that. It wasn't an act of presumption either that they would just do whatever they wanted and God will look after the consequences. It was an act of faith on their part. It was their faith in God that enabled them to do what they did, to for three months hide the child. Notice the three months here, because one of the things that Hebrews 11 is bringing bringing out about true faith is it perseveres. It's not just a flash in the pan. It's, It's something that continues, even against tremendous difficulties and discouragements, even in the face of death, as we've seen in verses 20 to 22. Their faith, therefore, had the quality of persevering, not of drawing back, but of going forward. It was an act of obedience, but also of trust in God. Of course it was an act of love to the child, of course it was. Of course it was an act of courage in terms of what they thought about the king, about Pharaoh and his power. Those qualities were certainly there, but the thing that was driving them, the thing that's clear about it, is it was by faith that they did this. What was their faith in? Because faith needs to have an object. Well, we can say without the data being just immediately given to us, we can say without a doubt their faith was in the promises of God. Because these were people who had the fear of God in their hearts, which meant that they were aware of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They were aware of the promises God had given and he kept repeating these through the book of Genesis. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That there will be a numerous seed. And it was this kind of promise on which their faith rested. Now, we might say, well, um, yeah, we, we would expect that because they are Jewish people. They are Hebrews. They're being persecuted by the Egyptians. They're being treated with hard bondage and rigor in the slave cities, we, we might expect them to, uh, to think like that. But we can be sure of this. They didn't all think like that, the Israelites. Many of them didn't behave like that or think like that. And in the sermon of Stephen, for example, he mentions that when Moses tried to avenge um, an Israelite who'd been struck down by an Egyptian, He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And they rejected him. And they said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And we read later on in the book of Exodus, as Moses went in to confront Pharaoh and to say to him, let my people go. This is the message that God is giving me for you. Let my people go. And Moses does this with fear and confidence in God and Pharaoh reacts with brazen antagonism and makes things even worse for the Israelites so that they have to make their bricks without straw being provided 
They had to go out and get the straw themselves, but still deliver the same quota of bricks. Who is it who then gets onto Moses and Aaron about this? Well, it's the Israelites. Uh, they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So we mustn't think that it's just instinctive in the Israelites to trust God. It wasn't at all. And we know from the various accounts of the Exodus that even when the multitude of the Israelites went out in that glorious Exodus with the high hand of God making a way for them, many of them still in their hearts were back in Egypt. They weren't being prompted by faith, the kind of faith that is that is here. There may have been an external faith. There may have been a, a terror of doing anything against this God who's released all his plagues on Egypt. They may have feared in that sense, but there wasn't the kind of fear that's here in the parents the fear that works, uh, and the kind of faith that works by love. So that's why they reacted as they did, and that is the challenge that, that the writer is here giving to his readers. Have you got this kind of faith, this kind of trust in God and his promises, so that when you stand up to certain people who say you should do this or that, people perhaps in authority you, do it. You, you say, no, I can't. Not because you're being defiant, not because you're being awkward and cantankerous, but because you fear God and his law and you love Christ. Because trust in God leads to action, of course. And so we, we, we just look now next at, fourthly, at what prompted this Faith. Now we know the promise of God prompted the faith, but was there any circumstance? Yes, there was. We're told it's because they saw he was a beautiful child and were not afraid of the king's command. There was something about that little baby boy, about Moses. And it's repeated, isn't it, from Exodus, that the very same phrase in the New King James, he was a beautiful child. Now, every baby is beautiful in the eyes of its parents. We know that. But there was, surely there's something here that our attention is being drawn to. It's translated in other versions as comely child or a fair child. Something about this child prompted them. And their attention was drawn to this child. In that way, in Acts chapter 7, it's Stephen's sermon. It depends a little bit on what translation you've got. But in verse 20, at this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God. I think some versions would have that beautiful in the sight of God. In other words, there was a sensitivity in these two believers. Yes, they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Yes, they were trusting in God and his promise, but also they were sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Their faith was being prompted by God. There is tremendous amount in the Bible about this aspect of faith. Let me just read to you a few verses from Psalm 25. 
which reminds us that, that there is this aspect. Verse 8 of Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he chooses. So the word of God is applied by the Spirit. The Spirit gives a sense of his leading. And in these days before much of the canon of Scripture had been written, there were external leadings, more external leadings perhaps than we would get in these New Testament days. This child was beautiful. There was something that attracted them to him. And that caused them to wait on God. Do you and I wait on God? It's one thing to say, as the scripture says, that if we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, the mountain will be removed. But the point is, where are we going to exercise that faith? How do we know that this is something that we can claim? Well, the answer is sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit. We wait on God. And then we pray a prayer and we know that we have the answer because God has led us there. So we have a number of general lessons. I don't want to prolong this, but a number of general lessons from this very short text. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. The first lesson is one right there on the surface. If we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. Of course, there was a risk. They didn't know what the outcome would be. They didn't know how quick-thinking Miriam would be as she offered to bring the mother of Moses to the princess and that the mother would look after the child. They didn't know any of that. They just took this step of faith in God because they feared him. That is a great command of Jesus do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell there are times when we have to say in the face of a difficult situation well the worst that can happen to me is that I die that's the worst that's not as bad as going to hell we're not to fear those who can kill the body, but we can fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And when we fear him, we have nothing else to fear, and he will never cast away his own. There can be a great risk, of course, but faith in God helps us to overcome in the face of that risk. So that's the first lesson. The second, clearly, is to know the promises of God so that we can trust them. These parents of Moses would have known the covenants that God had made with the patriarchs. They would have been aware that God 
had a purpose for the seed of Israel. They would have been aware of that. And so they had something to hang on to. So we need to know our Bibles in order to know what we should trust about God. We need to read them, meditate in them. And then next, we understand, of course, that Moses was the supreme leader of within the old covenant time. Uh, he was faithful in his house, as the writer says in chapter 3. And he was a beautiful child. But there's another child of another covenant. Jesus, the child of the new covenant. And like Moses, he too was threatened early in his life. Not now by a pharaoh, but by a Herod. And Jesus too, we are told was a beautiful child, in the kind of sense perhaps that the writer here is saying in Hebrews. In Luke 2 and verse 40, we read of the Christ child, that the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Just as the parents of Moses were not going to consign him to the crocodiles and to the waters of the Nile, but they thought he was precious and they watched over him. So we have a, an example to us in our reaction to the child of the new covenant, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Is he precious to you? Do you see beauty in him? Holy beauty in Christ. There's one place where Christ is rather intriguingly referred to as a child in the Acts. Again, I, I'm just not quite sure whether this comes through in the New King James. I don't think it does. But I think it comes through in the authorised version. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles pray to God, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, verse 27, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together through your holy servant Jesus, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And some translate that as through your child. Is he precious to you? And therefore, would you cleave by faith to him? Whatever threats come your way from whomever,